0: Hi, I'm Bob Batchelor. I'm the author of Stan Lee, The Man Behind Marvel. And you're listening to The Amazing Spider Talk.
1: Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle. All the questions and the webs left out to tangle. Be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon. They'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandon. The amazing spider of the amazing
2: Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of SuperiorSpiderTalk.com.
3: And I'm mischievous Mark Gianacchio, the founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die.
2: Thanks for joining us for the sixth episode of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture.
3: In this first season of the all new amazing spider talk, Dan, we've been taking a closer look at the Stanley and Steve Ditko creative run on the title. Uh, last time out, we talked about the bad guys. That appeared in the run, <laughs> but today we're talking about the man himself, Stan the Man Lee, and we are joined by Bob Batchelor, author of the upcoming biography called "Stan Lee: The Man Behind Marvel." Uh, but Dan, before we do that, I, I do think um, we should acknowledge the uh, the passing uh, over the weekend of a longtime uh, comic book creator Len Wein. I mean, Len, uh, of course was responsible for a number of of historic creations in in comic book history. I mean, most notably, probably he was the co-creator of Wolverine. Uh, But in terms of the Spider-Man universe, he he is part of the elite company of of writers uh, to have had an extended run on Amazing Spider-Man. He did that uh, in the 1970s following the uh, Jerry Conway run. He was sandwiched between Jerry Conway and Marv Wolfman. Um, we had Len on Amazing Spider Talk, oh, a couple years ago, right? We were at, was, you got him at Long Beach Comic Con?
2: Yeah, that's what's so shocking to me about this is I, I feel like I saw Len Ween all the time. Like, I, all, he's at all the cons out here in California, and I just saw him a couple months ago, and I always thought, like, well, I don't need to get an interview with him again, you know, because he's Len, he's at all these things, you know, with his big Wolverine fighting, the Hulk, you know, backdrop and stuff. And I guess, you know, it's like I mean, I, I don't need to reiterate that like life is a temporary thing and very impermanent, but it was a real surprise to me. I um, mean, we just discovered it right before we started recording, and, and I, I, I was shocked, and I, I think I am still kind of putting it all together, you know, processing that, oh, I'm not going to see Len you, know, next week at a convention.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's obviously very sad, but um, I mean, he he, you know, obviously gave us a lot of uh, of great moments and stories. I mean, the, one of my favorite Len Wein stories in Spider Man, um, which you got to ask him about, of course, was uh, the longest yard, which was an amazing Spider Man number one fifty three. It's just such a well done done in one Spider Man story, which is you know really a lost art. Uh, in today's world, but I mean, you know, which just described, um, what it was a, a former football player who, who kind of made a bad deal and had to, had to save his daughter from, from a mobster. And of course, Spider-Man is helping him do this. And it's, um. You know, like, so whenever I think of, of that run, I, I immediately go to that story. Uh, you know, there were some sillier moments. There was uh, the Mirage, I believe, is a Lenween. And of course, your favorite, Stegron, the dinosaur man. Oh, although that forget. might, well, although Stegron first actually appeared in Marvel Team Up, so that might have actually been Bill Mantlow. <laughs> Um, but, 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 you know, Len, Len was the one who put him in the museum of natural history for a Christmas issue, uh, which what could be better than reanimated dinosaur skeletons fighting Spider-Man in a Christmas issue,
2: Re- reanimated dinosaur skeletons covered with bees. That's the only oh. thing.
3: better. <laughs> Hopefully they're not Nazis, Nazi skeletons, right?
2: Yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a sad day for Spider-Man fans and fans of comics in general. I mean, you know, not to mention that he created Wolverine, you know, of all things. I mean, the guy was a legend and, uh, I hope that we can do him justice in a year or so when we cover his run on the book on this show. I'm just sad that he's not gonna be able to join us for it
3: yeah definitely so our, our our condolences go out to to his family and of course all of his friends in the industry um you know i already saw on my facebook feed dan i mean you know a lot of the people that we've talked to over the years on this show i mean they've been pouring condolences out so i mean it's it's a tight it's a big community but it's a tight community and and um you know i'm sure there are a lot of people who are like you, like you were saying, i just trying to kind of process this this idea that, like you said, we, you know, the next con or, or whatever, we're not going to see Len. So again, condolences go out to everybody. We we we're really sorry for this loss.
2: Well, I guess back to a lighter topic, talking about Stan the Man Lee. Um, this is going to be an interesting episode, Mark, because for once, I'm the odd man out because I've not written a book. <laughs> uh, I feel like a real inferior player uh, on this episode. But again, it was great to have uh, Bob Batchelor on. Uh, so I guess let's get right to the interview for this episode we're calling Excelsior or Excedrin.
1: Steve had said, having an idea is nothing because until it becomes a physical thing, it's just an idea, and he said it took him to draw the strip and to give it life, so to speak, or to make it actually something tangible, Um, otherwise all I had was an idea. So I said to him, well, I think the person with the idea is the person who creates it. And he said, no, because I drew it. Anyway, Steve definitely felt that he was the co-creator of Spider-Man. And that was really, after he said it, and I saw it meant a lot to him, that was fine with me. So I said, fine, I'll tell everybody you're the co-creator. That didn't quite satisfy him, so I sent him a letter. I put it in writing. To whom it may concern, this is to uh, state that I consider Steve Ditko to be the co-creator of Spider-Man along with me, something like that. And I sent it to him and I said, you can show this to anybody you want to. And I found out that Steve still objected to that because he felt, I used the word consider, I consider Steve to be the co-creator. Apparently he felt that wasn't definite enough. So at that point I gave up. I mean, we just, um, I haven't spoken to him or heard from him since, I don't think. But do you yourself believe that he co-created it? I'm willing to say so. That's not what I'm asking you Steve. No, and that's the best answer I can give you. So it's a no then, really? Pardon me? So it's a no then? No, I really think the guy who dreams the thing up created it. You dream it up and then you give it to anybody to draw it. I mean, But if it had been drawn differently, it might not have been successful or a hit, I suppose. Yeah, but like then that. I would have had created something that didn't succeed. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Valid point. But I don't want to... You made me say that yes. in this documentary that you're doing, and I'm sorry I said it because... I'm happy to say I consider Steve to be the co-creator. But you can see... uh... I I think if Steve wants to be called the co-creator, I think he deserves to be called the co-creator because he had done such a wonderful job.
2: Well, we want to welcome on the show Bob Batchelor. Uh, Bob, you're the writer of Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and this book you've got coming out?
0: Sure thing, guys. Thanks for having me on today. The book comes out on September 15th, and it is the first, what I'm saying, or calling the first full-scale biography of Stan Lee. I think some of your listeners will certainly have read some other things about Stan Lee that have been published that I would Call those more company histories or cultural histories. What I hope to do with Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel, was present Lee's life at the center of the story like a traditional biography. And so that's what uh, readers are looking forward to, and I'm looking forward to to getting out into the world. I am a college professor. I teach at Miami University. I teach in the media, journalism, and film department. I've had a a long run as a college professor. Before that, I worked in corporate communications and marketing for various large companies. Like most people, probably a lot of your listeners, a lifelong Marvel fan, and I feel like in some ways I grew up with Stan Lee. So this is maybe the book that I've been planning to write my entire life.
2: Yeah. How did that come about?
0: Well... In my past as a, as a writer and a cultural historian, I've always looked for topics that were really large. So I've written a book, a biography of the book The Great Gatsby, and I wrote a book about the television show Mad Men, and I wrote a, a critical biography of John Updike. So I look for these really large popular culture topics. And as my editor uh, at Roman and Littlefield, Stephen Ryan, and I were talking about my next project, I knew I wanted to write a book for the general reader, and I knew I wanted to find a subject that people thought they knew well, but perhaps there were still some things to be said about that subject. And after uh, kind of breaking our—or putting our heads together for a long time, it just broke on us out of nowhere— Stan Lee, and he called me one day and said, "I've got the answer. It's Stan Lee." And I, I was just like struck like a th- by a thunderbolt. It it became so obvious once somebody else said it. It was really the right in front of my eyes my entire life, but I I never really had considered it. So that's how um, it was just two guys putting their heads together looking for a great topic, and and it was there all along.
3: Now, how did you go about uh, researching this book? I mean, did you go through some old Stan interviews? Did you do some original interviews? What was um, your process for that?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I purposely did not seek Stan's authorization for this book, and I purposely did that because I wanted it to be a truly as objective as possible biography slash history of the man and his era. And so rather than base the the book on, you know, doing 100 or 150 interviews or something like that, I thought to myself, there's more than enough archival information about Lee. There's hundreds and hundreds of interviews If I spend time in the Stanley archives at the University of Wyoming and really dig there and then go to some other archives, get some other rare collections, um, go through those, read several hundred uh, comic books, I'm going to be able to create a picture of Lee that maybe um, is a little bit more objective or a little bit, I don't want to say friendly or unfriendly. But, but maybe using my training as a historian and a literary analysis, analyst, I could create a, a picture that might be a little fuller and uh, without some of the bias that, that other people carry when they, when they talk about Lee. Well,
2: that's funny you say that because this episode is called Excelsior or Excedrin. And I I think, I think really you can fall on either side of that, you know, when you're talking about Stan Lee and typically when it's coming from Stan Lee's mouth, it falls much more obviously with Excelsior. So there's a lot of kind of myth to break down. I mean, he seems like a man he's, he's famous for creating myth, but one of his most famous myths might be himself. So how did you kind of break, you know, through that? And I guess, what are your feelings about that as well?
0: Oh, that's a wonderful question, and I really think it cuts to the heart of who Stan Lee is as a person. My gut feeling, and having spent a career working and teaching in marketing and strategic communications, is that it's too easy to just say that Stan Lee was some kind of P.T. Barnum figure. I think it's really an easy criticism to say Lee was doing this all for himself, But if you look at the evolution of his career, particularly, I mean, the guy's in comics for 20 years easily, 20-plus years before he hits it big with Fantastic Four and Spider-Man. He had ridden out every up and down, every genre change. He lived through uh, the 50s massacre of the comic book industry. When Marvel finally became something important in popular culture— Lee became more like a spokesman for the industry, not just for himself or – I mean, he definitely did it for Marvel. But he was transcending, I believe, just a play to try to get really popular because nobody needs to be a Johnny Appleseed like that to the degree which Lee did. Um, He was well popular and would have become well famous with doing a third of what he did. I think for Lee, it was always about solidifying this industry that he committed to, and um, making sure that it was going to stick around. They they never thought superheroes were going to stick. They just thought it was the next the, the next big thing that was going to go away after a while. So I think there's a lot of mythology, as you mentioned, um, and certainly Stan is is provocative there and has drawn some of this himself. I mean, that criticism stands for what it is. I think there's a fuller picture there, and that's part of really a, a cornerstone of of the biography.
3: One thing I always noticed about Stan when he talked about, especially like the early days of Marvel, which which you document obviously in in your book, is is how consistently on message he has always stayed. <laughs> like, you know, you could you I, I when I was doing some research for my book, I mean, I obviously didn't dive as deeply into just Stan as as you did, because I was tackling a whole score of different topics related to Spider-Man overall. But I mean, even in just reading in you know a good number of interviews with Stan, he would, you know, like there's the story about Fantastic Four, which is like you you could read an interview from the 60s, from the 70s, from the 80s, from the 90s, and like that story that never deviates. It's always the same. Or when he talks about Spider-Man, when he talk, you know, it's, it's Martin Goodman. Didn't, didn't want a teenager. Martin Goodman didn't want, um, you know, the teenagers were sidekicks. He thought spiders were, would, would freak out the audience. You know, like it's, it's these, these little anecdotes that, that never change and never. So, you know, kind of talking about that, the, the mythology that he kind of is almost building around himself. I mean, when you were researching, I mean, did you? How were you able to kind of parse through that and, and try and find new detail or or new elements to kind of pick through? Because that was, I mean, personally, I was kind of almost getting frustrated because it was like, you know, what 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 is new out there? How how can you break through somebody who just doesn't deviate from a message?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's interesting and and certainly true. I think you can look at that two different ways. For the book that I've written, one of the reasons that I wrote it, other than being a lifelong Stan fan and Marvel fan and and understanding where both he and the company and the the, the superheroes exist in popular culture, is that I interviewed hundreds of people who were self-professed Stan Lee fans or Marvel lovers. And so rather than just ask somebody— do you, do you love Stan Lee? Because they're, they're like, yes, I love Stan Lee. I would follow it and say, well, what do you know about Stan Lee? And they'd say something like he created Spider-Man. Um, and I'd be like, well, you know, don't want to burst your bubble, but that was a co-creation. Do you, do you understand that? And the more you talk to self professed fans of all age groups, I found they don't know, they the things, many of the things they thought they knew were a little off or outright wrong. And many of the things um, they, they didn't know anything at all about Stan or really very much about Marvel. And so I'm trying to bring that, that story to them. And I think when Stan stays on the party line on certain issues, that at some point you have to then present that argument when you know the majority of the people who pick up the book don't know much at all. It's almost like teaching college students. I have students who are very bright. They don't know tactically the kind of things they need to do to achieve in their career. But if I explain it really well and make the connection for them, they see the bigger picture pretty well. So as I'm digging through the various um, stories, I... I think people who don't want to believe in, in Stan's role in the co-creation process dismiss those stories. My tact was that you have enough people across writers he hired, other artists, other people who were influencers at the time, that you could build a, a case for what Lee is saying and doing that's just as credible as say the people who are big uh, Jack Kirby supporters, who take every word he says as gospel and take every word Lee says as an outright lie. I know that's that's heresy for some of your listeners, and I certainly am not taking uh, Lord Jack Kirby's name in vain in any way. <laughs> but I, I often see people because I can get really neat, really geeky, and like comic book historiany. You know, on this topic, I choose not to most of the time, but I see people taking Lee Ditka or Kirby Ditko and others at face value and automatically dismissing everything Lee says. So I think on one hand, you have to bring those stories and those ideas that that Lee keeps consistently saying to the audience, but also massage them around and provide the context that gives the reader a a full understanding. Like you, you're not just believing everything Lee says you're, you're adding um, that body to it. That really, that makes it, that makes it much more solid.
2: I want to get into the kind of like specifics of the Dicko era with you, but I think you mentioned all of the work that Stan was doing, uh, not just for Marvel as a company, but for comics in general. Um, And, And it's kind of mythologizing as part of that. So, like, I've always seen the critiques of Stan and his mythology as almost like ringing hollow. Because even if they are true, I think a lot of people turned up for these comics because of this mythology of who Stan Lee is. Like, he was the guy you showed up for because you wanted to be buddies with this guy from his soapbox on down. How much do you think, like, Stan Lee, the person... Like, forget about his comic. Stan Lee, the person, was the draw uh, to these early comics.
0: I think it was a a prime mover from the start. He's the one that took it upon himself to bring these innovations to comic books. I, I can give my own life history as an example. I was a poor kid growing up in western Pennsylvania near Pittsburgh. As a little kid, I had no conception really of what New York city was. I had very little conception growing up in the, you know, the early to mid seventies. Um, you you know, anything about like the big city, I grew up in a very rural poor area. Um, but when I got those Marvel comic books and I read Stan soapbox, I felt immediately like there's something about this guy. I felt a kinship to him. And I've heard many people say, you know, it's like receiving a message from Uncle Stan. And so the ability to break through that fourth wall the way that he did in the comic books, but also build a personality around that. Um I think it's it's fascinating. It's and it's it's a prime it was a prime draw in the 70s, it's it's prime draw in the sixties. It's it's been that way ever since. Last year, I saw Stan in his um, final Ohio appearance at the Cincinnati Comic Expo, and there were hundreds of people there, and uh, he was the draw, obviously. They would come out a line, and standing in a line for four or five hours, and you'd think people would be upset in this kind of fast-paced world. They don't want to stand in line. Every single person— Every single person coming out of that line—it looked like Christmas morning. It was one of the most amazing things I'd ever seen. It, and, and some of these people had paid pre- premium kind of money to get the ultra Stanley experience at the at the Comic Expo. It didn't matter. There were dads with daughters. There were little kids. There were old men. Universally, hugest smile I've ever seen. It was like it was better than being at a wedding or a graduation. It was it was a really amazing. Um, amazing thing to watch. So I think Lee's always been the draw and because he's the face, that's where the criticism comes in, where I would argue as in any industry, somebody had to be the face. Lee was in the right place at the right time, had the right mindset, caught kind of the tailwind of a, of pop culture, bursting lots of other uh cultural factors coming into play and you know there he is uh i think it's it's hugely important to the comic book industry
3: not to make you pick a side because that's not really where i'm going for with this question but just to kind of set it up for a second This the idea of the of the co-creator so you know it's it's funny because Especially when I, you know, reading some of uh, Steve Ditko's essays about his relationship with Stan and just his relationship in comics in general. I mean, St- Dicko kind of takes this stance where, you know, even though he doesn't outright say it, you can, you basically can infer that he believes he has more ownership of what's on the page because, you know, as the artist, he is you know he's rendering it he's visualizing it he he's he's taking a a verbal or a written concept and and breathing life into it and you know stan whenever he's been pressed about this whole idea i mean you know he he will always say well i consider Kirby, i consider dick go co-creators of these things and in one of the few times where i feel like that stan kind of did go off message there was this um, documentary from the BBC about a decade or so ago called "In Search of uh, Steve Ditko," and the 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 interviewer kind of pressed Stan on this thing about, well, what do you mean you consider Steve the co-creator? Why isn't he just the co-creator? Why do you have to kind of, you know, preface it and put conditions on it? And then Stan kind of broke a little bit and said. You know, I feel the creator is the one who dreams up of the idea. So, with all that <laughs> preamble, I mean, where, where, I mean, what do you, in your research and in, 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 in kind of hearing, you know, listening to Stan or seeing what Stan has said in these instances, I mean, what, where do you kind of fall on that? I mean, is it, is it, is it a strict 50 50 thing? Does one, deserve credit more than the other? Should someone be considered something? I mean, what did, what did your research kind of lead you to infer yourself?
0: Uh, yeah, dicey, dicey topic, but one that you have to think about. I mean, so, you know, I don't think that anybody that understands comic books and comic book history has thought about this. So it's a, it's a great question to, to think about here. I personally am a word guy. And so as I was growing up, the, the pictures meant very little to me, and, and that might seem blasphemous to some people, but I, to me, Marvel was the words, and Spider-Man's tone, which I now understand as a literary analyst, you know, is, is an author's voice, uh, the way they set, establish scenes, things like that, is, is very definitive— what my research revealed about the voice topic is that if you look back on what stan wrote that you can get your hands on pre-1960 61 the voice is consistent so even if you go back to the first story he ever wrote which many of your readers might have seen it's a little two-page short story in a captain america um, the first thing he ever published from for marvel the the tone of that You could have plopped that right down in 1961, 62, 63. It, the voice is consistent. And so to me, I think that if you're, if you're a a tone voice words person, you're going to track towards Stan. If you're a pictures person, which is fantastic. I mean, there are a lot of artists out there that Kirby was Kirby Ditko were their main source of inspiration. And so they track that way. I mean, I see it as a pop culture guy, you know, are you a singer or song guy when it comes to bands? You know, I love Pearl Jam because I love Eddie Vedder's voice. If Eddie Vedder leaves Pearl Jam, I'll never probably deal with Pearl Jam again. It's Eddie Vedder is the band to me, but that's just my personal preference. I think you can show, and I think what my book does is show perhaps a little more of the evolution of Stan's voice, which I think maybe without going too far into it gives some credence to the fact that Lee was working hard, writing a lot of scripts. And, you know, before the world blew up with the Fantastic Four, Spider-Man and the succession of amazing superheroes that they all put together. To my mind, it's a 50-50 deal. The challenge is, We can't go back in time. There's no significant paper trail, and I think what I also try to show in the book, which many people don't think about, we see comic books now. Many people as works of art, as collector collectors' items, as things that should be hung in museums. Lee, Ditko, Kirby. This was just a way to make money. This was their living. They're they're trying to live their version of the American dream. And what we certainly know about Martin Goodman is that he was just in the, in the business of moving mountains of paper. He, he didn't see any value in any of this beyond uh, making money. So that's perhaps why their recollections are, are skewed there. I mean, we're talking about many, many decades ago with flawed kind of thinking you know, something that became really huge that had absolutely well very little value other than a month-to-month sales quota. So um, there's a lot of context there that makes that question even more difficult to answer than I just think uh, declaring yourself one way or another. But something we obviously have to always consider. We, all, we always have to come back to this question. It's important. But there's a lot of context that I think a lot of people don't um, – Consider deeply enough. Uh,
3: If I can, just because we've thrown this name around a couple of times over the course of this conversation, Martin Goodman, he was the publisher of Marvel uh, comics during, you know, the pre pre superhero days. Right. Right, Bob. And he was more or less the one that kind of thrust this idea on Stan after what Justice League came out from D.C. to like come up with a Marvel version of the Justice League, which ended up being Fantastic Four.
0: Sure. Yeah. So Martin Goodman is the founder of this mini publishing empire that grew out of the the probably the the roaring twenties. And Goodman's main objective was to publish these kind of salacious, semi-nudie, celebrity based magazines. It was really kind of a weird I mean he's a fascinating but very odd guy. Um, there are stories about him. Even he, he liked to surround himself with family members. So all of his brothers and cousins and all the, they all worked for him. Um, but they still had to call him Mr. Goodman. It was a very kind of old school. <laughs> but then you also hear stories about Goodman, you know, where he, you know, kind of madmenish. He'd, he'd drink through lunch and kind of play backgammon through the afternoon and sleep on his couch. So it was a, a very weird era. But he he saw comics as important and by giving Kirby and Joe Simon the ability to create Captain America and then promoting that book. I mean, he really is a central figure in comic book history, and he's really the power behind everything that's going on at Marvel Um, about the only thing he did uh, on a on a issue to issue basis was focus on the covers. He had a big thing for covers. But otherwise, when things were going well and money was coming in, he let he gave Lee some some leeway. Whenever money would get tight or comic book sales would dip, he immediately wanted to cut titles and go on to something else. So he was kind of a genre jumper. If somebody else brought romance comics out and they started selling, he'd flood the market. So it was a really a kind of a strange business um, ideology that Goodman had, but he did have power over Lee and he did use that power throughout their time together from, you know, the late thirties through, uh, when they sell off Marvel in the early seventies. So Goodman's a character that's, he's always there and he's very important. A lot of people don't think, think that uh, maybe as much as they need to about him.
2: So you mentioned that Stan Lee's voice remained consistent, even from his early comics to, you know, the mid-60s. You know, he was, his. I think he's pretty consistent throughout his life. Um, maybe not in terms of popularity, but uh, anyway, there was a point in time where he was writing, like, I guess, like upwards of, like, 12 comics at a time for Marvel, and yet his voice does remain pretty consistent. Can, what would you use to describe... Stan Lee's voice as a creator. Like, what is a Stan Lee comic like? And is there a prototypical comic that you think is, like, very Stan Lee, maybe a Spider-Man comic?
0: I think that Lee's voice remains consistent, and there's a tone there that certainly, I think we would say in today's parlance, uh, smart-alecky. You know, that kind of, I know something you don't know wink-wink kind of tone. But you also see his tone change over time because one of um, Martin Goodman's edicts was that comic books were for children 10 and under and imbecilic adults. That's who he saw as his marketplace. And that kind of gives you an understanding of where, where Goodman's head was about comic books. So when he did look through the comics, if Lee tried to put larger words in or be too, I guess, air quotes, intellectual in the comic books, Goodman would come down on him. As the era progressed, and I'd say into the 50s and then obviously with the 60s, you know, some power really shifts between Goodman and Lee once the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man take off. Lee is able to bring more of his own writing and showcase his own voice in a way that the early Spider-Man books really show the way that he, he scripted co-scripted and edited the early Thor and, and some of the Iron Man books. There's a bit of aspirational language in those comic books, but Stan still understanding that you can't go too far Because the audience had not shifted completely yet, and he still had to um, kind of uh, pay attention to what Goodman had to say. Uh, He's still—it's an important thing. We think of a writer today in seclusion, in a library, in an office, writing, pounding out um, scripts and books and things like that. Lee's job was so much more. I mean, he's really uh, the production editor, the art editor— editor-in-chief, head writer, so many different roles that Lee's playing. I think that's why the Marvel method becomes uh, necessary. And Lee's got to teach other people and help other people understand his style because he's pulled in so many directions. As Marvel explodes, his job grows exponentially. So, I mean, er, certainly the early Spider-Man comic books, those early runs... There's a mix of kind of, you know, storytelling of that era, some 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 very dated language, which I think is interesting for the way the way that Lee writes at the time. Um and I think that there's a voice there that's pretty consistent. I, I think if somebody wanted to see the early Lee, the early Spider-Man books are the best way to do it. Um if you have access to Marvel Unlimited or something like that, or you 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 collect I think you could certainly go back to some of the, um, like the rawhide kid stuff, anything that he did with Joe Manley, um, I think is, is good to see that consistent voice throughout. So, um, there's definitely early comic books available. Sometimes it's difficult because you, you're not really a hundred percent sure. Usually Lee signs what he did, what he does, even, even pre fantastic four. So you, you can see it, you can see it in, uh, in a lot of even the even the the monster books that were big in the late 50s
3: not to go back to the artist stuff again but you know one thing that does interest me i mean putting aside what we learned about stan's relationship to some of these different artists years later even even early on it seemed that stan and steve dicko kind of had a, a an odd relationship i mean you know dicko left earlier you know he left In 65, I believe. Does that sound about right, uh, Dan? Yeah, I think so. Um, Whereas Kirby stuck around with Fantastic Four for a while, you know, for many years. Um, And also um, during the run on on Amazing Spider-Man, I mean, Stan more or less just kind of let Dicko run the show and even gave him a co- plotter or, uh, yeah. Yeah. Co-plotter credit, on a lot of the stories that they did together, which was kind of from a creator's rights standpoint was kind of unprecedented, uh, in that era. I mean, in your research, I mean, what, what kind of, what, what, what were you able to kind of chalk up a kind of the difference in relationship there? I mean, was it just that Dicko is just, I mean, even though Kirby showed, You know, talked very bitterly years later. I mean, there had to be something that made him click with Stan for so many years, whereas Ditko, who we know is kind of an aloof personality on many levels, kind of just earlier, early on broke ties with Stan and really wanted nothing to do with him after a while.
0: Yeah, I think um, I don't know how much. Research there is. I mean, uh, to 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 break this understanding down, but I think Ditko had very strong ideas about the characters he created, and then what his role should be um, labeled as publicly. And I think we see Ditko in some ways as this aloof guy, but he stood up for himself in a way. That I think rubbed Lee the wrong way, and that started a downward spiral that led to Ditko leaving. Now I think you could say, in many respects, that that's you know that's great for Ditko that he was willing to stand up to himself. In, in an environment in which comic books are all of a sudden becoming very popular, they're, they're not limited to the number of books that they can put out at any given time. Um, it's a chaotic environment, and Stan obviously was not able to placate or handle a personality like Ditko's that led to a lot of strife. Whereas most of the other people working there as kind of, you know, semi-permanent freelancers, there was a more give-and-take relationship. I think it's interesting that during this time, you know, Ditko comes back in the late 50s. Kirby comes back in the late 50s. Ditko's on the upswing at that time. Um Kirby has probably burned a lot of bridges at other places, and this maybe Marvel at that time is his last shot. I think maybe even it's a slightly semi-generational thing between the two that uh, Ditko, even though he's a conservative thinker, is still a member of a different kind of generation uh, than Kirby, who— is more of an older generational thinker. So I think that's why they, uh, plus just the simple fact that, you know, when Stan got hired at then Timely Comics, he, he was filling Kirby's Inkwell, you know, so they had a much longer history. And so when the success came, they stuck it out. Whereas Ditko, I think, uh, you know, a different personality, a little gutsier, willing to not, Roll over to Lee the way some of the other freelancers were, and I think that's really maybe at the heart of of what was going on there
3: yeah, I mean, I almost get the sense that you know certainly at the time, I mean Kirby kind of just embraced his role as the the blue collar freelancer, so to speak and and you know it wasn't until years later where you know you know he he was obviously successful in terms of culturally, but maybe not financially. And then, you know, he saw Stan kind of leading the way. And then that's where the, the bitterness came in where it just seemed like from the beginning, Dicko, like you say, he had his ideology, he had these things and, um, you know, it just was never going to be a, a, a sound relationship with Stan yeah. with, with, with the way Dicko was kind of, yeah, you know, the way he thought, you know, the, and the way his personality was set up.
0: Yeah, they but they had a long time together. I mean, that's what, you know, it wasn't just like, you know, Spider-Man hits, you know, Ditko sticks around for a little bit longer. I, I think that, you know, I don't know exactly when Ditko started with Marvel. I'm sure there are fans out there, Ditko, Ditko fans, that that have that number right at their fingertips. But I think it was about a 10-year span where Ditko is freelancing pretty much, you know, full time for for Marvel, and so they were able to keep this relationship together and and at least make it productive enough that they could do good work together until this thing called Spider-Man blew up and became the biggest thing in the comic book industry. And that exponential increase in popularity and importance brought out the real fight in both of these guys and and uh, exacerbated any differences that they had creatively, kind of philosophically, existentially. Um, from what I understand, you you couldn't find two people more uh, diametrically opposed than Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. They kept it together for a long time, but then success brought out points in which, you know, this thing was, was going to spiral out of control. And that I think, you know, was a big part of Ditko taking off.
2: You say that they're diametrically opposed. Uh, what were the topics or points that you feel like Stan Lee wanted to champion the most Maybe within specifically within the pages of Spider-Man.
0: I think that, you know, and, and I don't know this maybe as well as some of your listeners do, but it's my sense that Lee wanted Spider-Man to remain more happy, jolly, more optimistic perhaps than Ditko. And maybe... You know, particularly as time rolled on and you're looking at, you know, the mid-60s and all the strife going on in the world, that Ditko Ditko would have wanted to address that in a more perhaps realistic fashion, bring bring ideology and political um, inferences into the books in a little more straightforward way maybe not always have Spider-Man, uh, you know, kind of take the establishment perspective. And, uh, and I can't imagine Lee, um, you know, agreeing with that, with that line of reasoning. Lee took some, some interesting and, uh, progressive points on in the comic books and, and, and that's well-documented but I don't think that he was as willing to make his flagship character part of that discussion.
3: You know, when I was doing a little research f- for for my book, you know, one of the things that Dicko would kind of hammer over and over again in terms of the character with Spider Man was, you know, it must it must remain must be true to a teenager's world, and that's always what he said. And I think, to a part, those instincts were good. But Stan thinking bigger and broader and I think also more about what would sell as a comic. I mean, you know, Stan was the one who was pushing these ideas of he should fight a villain named Dr. Octopus and he Mm -hmm. should fight the Sandman and the Vulture. And, you know, like so it, it is interesting in that. Like you said, I mean, he he. There was definitely a, a happier sheen, I think, that Stan was trying to push on the character. But there were just, like, I think those more traditional superhero comic elements that Stan was always kind of pushing too. And I think if it was up to Dicko, it would just be S- Spider-Man fighting faceless thugs and and, you know gangsters 24-7 who who end up being revealed as like you know the butler did it or something right (laughs) right Dan sure yeah (laughs) yeah
0: yeah and I think I think Stan is looking uh, this is another point it just kind of came to me but I I really emphasize it in the book the the fact that Stan had to have his eye on all these other facets of the company really distanced himself as the, as the superhero boom took off because, you know, if you're Ditko and Kirby, they they didn't care about licensing and things like this. They didn't, they didn't care about superhero action figures. But if you look in the archives, I mean, there, there are Stan did sketches of like, you know, superhero comic or coloring books that they wanted to put out, things like this. Um, he had to think and consider so many more facets of all this. So the idea that you mentioned that, you know, Lee is trying to take his flagship character and keep him in a more maybe traditional superhero role, even though he has all these human challenges, that's going to sell more, you know, um, Spider-Man lunchboxes. And that's something that Lee has to consider because as his role in the company has, has has grown and expanded, he's hearing that and he's getting pressure in those areas that, you know, the artists could could be more pure perhaps in the way they look at the development of these characters. Whereas Lee is is like, well, you know, we need we need a you know, we need a Spider-Man cartoon and we need um you know, I remember I had this Spider-Man is is a doll with a parachute attached, and you throw it as high as you could up in the air, and it'd, like, parachute back down to Earth, you know? So Stan Lee wants there to be Spider-Man Halloween costumes, you know? And, and, you know, we look back at this now and think, well, this was just a a creativity thing. It was a pureness versus non-pure. But at the time, there were real financial implications to how this character developed.
3: I mean, just to just to jump off one of the points you are making there about kind of again the the bigger ideas with Stan. I mean, one of my favorite anecdotes, um, actually, it was kind of post it goes with Ramita John Ramita Senior um, during the um, development of the Spider-Man animated cartoon in '67, and you know Ramita saw some of like the 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 you know looked at the pilot and basically like went to Stan, like, what are you doing? The show is terrible, (laughs) which, Mm -hmm. which from a comic book standpoint, it was, I mean, you know, the production values were off and Stan kept saying, no, you got to trust me on this one. This is, you know, what, how many thousand people read a comic? This is going to go to millions. And, and it, and it's true. I mean, the, that, that cartoon put Spider-Man more on the map than even, those are those early comic books. Did I mean it's you know easy to kind of look back now at Spider-Man being this phenom about oh well, you know Amazing Fantasy 15 and he was a, a a hit from day one. But the fact is, it's it was the cartoon that kind of put him even more on the map and and opened him up to an even broader audience. And it's it's like again those instincts he's got. You know, say what you will about the, the, the salesmanship and, and, you know, how he rubs people the wrong way. But like, I just feel like you can never doubt Stanley's instincts.
0: Yeah. That's a really great point because, um, Lee is pushing those areas and, and in some of those early, um, multimedia efforts, Lee would get, you know, like he does now with the producer credits, he'd get the credit, but you know, the rights were already sold the, those early animators, they controlled everything. And it was Lee's vision to see that this character could be that much broader, um, you know, the way that Superman and Batman had been so much broader. You know, he, he learned from watching what had happened with those characters and saw a path that, that Spider-Man could then take. And so, you know, having that understanding of... It's not just about comic books. It's about so much more and how that relates to not only the the popular culture, but the company's success long term, I think, is is really a significant point that that people should think about. You know, it's another one of those context points that if you don't if you don't think about the whole context, you're going to be missing big parts of the story.
2: All right, Bob. Well, uh, I think that's a good place to end this conversation. We've really covered a lot of Stan Lee and his time at Marvel and and the controversy around it. So why don't you uh, tell our listeners where they can, I guess, find more of you on the Internet or find your book uh, if they want to learn more?
0: Okay, so if you're interested in finding out more about Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel, you can certainly order the book from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, the other large uh, publishing companies. I have uh, additional Stan Lee information at my website, which is www.bobbatchelor.com. Very simple, just my name. Uh, I tweet at 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 cultpopculture.com. I'm pretty active on Facebook. We have a Stan Lee, the man behind Marvel, Facebook page where we also post. Um, And uh, later this year, I'm going to be uh, unveiling a virtual museum, and I'm hoping that it's going to cover broad swaths of American popular culture, particularly in the 20th and 21st century. But there's going to be a Stan Lee exhibit and Stan Lee Wing of this uh, Virtual Museum of American Popular Culture. That's still in the works, and we're working hard to um, unveil that because I think there's a lot, both general readers and historians, can, can, can find out about Lee that we still haven't uncovered as we you know march quickly toward his 95th birthday at the end of the year.
2: That sounds awesome. You're going to have to come back on and tell us all about that once it gets up and running.
0: OK, definitely. Yeah, we I have high hopes for that because, you know, I I want this book to get into readers hands. But that that scholars cap, I can never really fully take it off. And and I, I have this geeky wish that I maybe would have been a museum curator. So I'm just going to, you know, use the great technology we have in in the in, in this era to to create my own online museum, which, you know, will will get to people around the world. They won't have to come to me. I'll go to them.
2: Now, anybody can be a curator in a way. Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
2: Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was really a blast to have you.
0: Well, I really appreciate it guys. This was, this was the most fun I've had in a long time. I really, uh, I dig what you guys do. And I think any fans out there who, who dig Spider-Man, if they're not listening to you two, uh, on your podcast, then, then they're just, they're missing so much that they could, uh, enjoy and, and, gain from, from what you guys put out. So I'm a fan and I'm very proud to have been on, on with you. Well, thank you very much. We really appreciate I'm that. I'm
2: blushing over here. all right well thanks again
0: okay thanks guys
3: well thanks again to to bob that was a a real fun conversation dan um he definitely covered uh a lot of topics and i think a way that just you and me going back and forth, maybe would have thought it wouldn't have thought about it that way. So it's always good to, to bring that uh, perspective on Um, Dan, our next episode is going to be out in two weeks, September 27th. What's the title of that show?
2: Well, that show is going to be called Papa Jonah. (gasps) Yay! It's all about pizza? (laughs) No, we're going to be discussing the man who might be Spider-Man's greatest enemy. That's none other than the old cigar-chomping flat top himself, J. Jonah Jameson.
3: Why are you talking? I need pictures of Spider-Man, Dan. (laughs) Right on it, sir. (laughs) Uh, Also, for our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed for this week's bonus episode. This week, Dan and I are going to finally settle the score on whether or not annuals count. So be sure to check in. Uh, This will be one to remember and to count on.
2: And (laughs) Mark, (laughs) I'm going to win this. (laughs)
3: And speaking of which, for $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic for the time being,
2: Unless it's an annual.
3: Unless it's an annual or a 25th issue or whatever. uh, You'll be getting access to our exclusive new issue reviews, Swarm B-Book reviews, mailbags, and all the other things we talk about in the off-season or the off-weeks. And then, of course, for $10 or more a month, You'll be sent exclusive commissioned artwork in the mail every six months. Dan, what could be better than that?
2: That I could tell you it's Ron Friend's exclusive commissioned artwork. Even better. Did you, uh, by any chance, this is a bit of an aside, but uh, did you by chance see the Ron Friend's commissioned Spider-Man on the Game of Thrones throne that's made out of Iron Man pieces?
3: Yes, I did.
2: It was amazing.
3: I also enjoyed Ron's reimaginings of Amazing, the cover to Amazing Spider Man, I think it was 257, Him Against the Puma. Yep. Where it was like, oh, is this like someone was like, oh, this is even better than the original. Was this rejected? And he was like, oh, no, I just can't, you know, I just decided to redo this one.
2: (laughs) So we are getting the cover of Amazing Spider Man 33, that moment of Spider Man lifting the steel, drawn by Ron Friends. I couldn't think of anything cooler to hang on my wall. So, uh come join us over on Patreon and get a piece of that action.
3: Wait, wait. Why why, why does it get to be on your wall, Dan?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, it's going to be on it's going to be on everybody's wall. That's true. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I'm buying into this too, Mark. I'm supporting okay. us.
3: Uh- <laughs> Anyway, Dad, where can we find you on the social medias?
2: Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at, at supspidertalk, where I talk all my Spider Man and comic book musings and, and post all the awesome stuff that uh, we're doing over on SuperiorSpiderTalk.com, which, if I haven't plugged it yet, SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. Check it out. Awesome stuff happening over on that website for you guys to read if you just can't get enough Spider Man stuff. Mark, what about you?
3: Well, of course, you can find me on the Twitter at ChasingASM blog and you can find me on SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. Uh, you know, as long as a new ep- uh, issue of Amazing Spider-Man comes out over the next <laughs> three months, I guess.
2: <laughs> Where is uh, this issue?
3: Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um and, uh, of course there's chasing amazing blog, which I've also been kind of, uh, delinquent on lately, but, uh, actually, uh, a post re- relevant to the, uh, B episode, the Patreon episode we're doing, uh, should be hopefully going up over the next week or so. I imagine uh, that's,
2: oh, a, that's a post where you're going to be admitting that I was right all along
3: right uh and also don't forget to you can still order my book uh 100 things spider-man fans should know and do before they die wherever books are sold
2: awesome well we're talking about stan lee today and i think you know as much as it's been attributed to uncle ben this this famous phrase of ours it's really stan lee who uh coined our favorite adage mark what would that adage be
3: With great podcasts must also come the all new amazing spider talk.